First of all, thank you for everyone who prayed for me to get through this annoying flu, cold, bug thing. It's been an ugly little journey, but um, I think we're getting better. Let me apologize in advance should I cough my way through this sermon. I managed to cough my way through worship, so we'll see how it goes. You know, over the last few months, I've felt like I've been living out our passage this morning in Romans chapter 8. The passage begins with this statement, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. I know Craig covered some of this last week, but the whole passage that I want to do after what he covered ties into this one verse as well. It's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? Suffering, pain, anguish, all part of the human experience to some degree. Take the last few months of my life, which, by the way, I consider to be very good, very blessed life. But in February, a dear friend and a mentor of mine in ministry passed away just because he got the flu. Next, my niece died of an apparent drug overdose, something that is still yet to be confirmed. We haven't got the autopsy yet. Last week, I flew back to Arkansas to sign papers giving me durable attorney over my mother as both her and my stepfather's health is declining. In his case, it's declining rapidly. That trip is how I got sick, actually. I think I got sick on the airplane going back, that little, you know, enclosed environment for germs. Yeah. No sooner did I get back from that trip but that I got a call telling me that my stepdad had fell from a sitting position on the edge of the tub into the tub, resulting in stitches in his head and an overnighter in the hospital for more complications. I repeat, I lead and I enjoy a blessed life, and yet it still has these sort of things in it. Folks, this world is broken. Amen? It is. It just is. Jesus said it himself. In this world, you will have tribulation. There was no maybe in that statement. You simply will have tribulation. We're all going to have hard things happen in our lives. We will all know pain. We will all know suffering of some sort to some degree. It's part of the fallen world that we live in. So what do we do about it? How shall we then live in light of that fact? Should we resign ourselves to it? This is just how life is. It doesn't get any better than this. Do we even have a choice in the matter? I believe that there are few people in the world that understand pain and suffering like the Apostle Paul did. And yet I don't believe that there was a fatalistic bone in that man's body Paul did not live in despair despite the things that happened to him. He lived in hope. And that's what today's passage really is about. It's about hope. Let's stop and pray, and then I want to read the passage to you. Heavenly Father, you are the God of all hope. You are the God of all comfort. You are the God who says he is love. And yet, Father, we know that we live in a broken world, a world that is literally falling apart at the seams. And it has been ever since we made it that way. 
ever since we took your perfect creation and planted the seed of destruction in it. But this passage, Father God, is about telling us that there's more than just hope to be had. There is life. There is incredible promise for an incredible life, even in the midst of a broken, declining, decaying world. You have never left us without hope. Father God, maybe we need to repent this morning for the despair that seems to overtake us so easily because we don't have to live as people without hope. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to what you have for us because it's incredible. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. I'm going to read out of the NIV this morning. This is our passage. Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. Not only this, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and words that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Did you notice in that passage, there's a lot of groaning going on? Yeah, there is. Actually, there is. There's a lot of groaning going on, but there's also a lot of hoping going on as well. Paul talks about these present sufferings. There are a few possibilities that come to mind when you consider who Paul is talking to, the church at Rome. First of all, Paul could be speaking of the persecution of the early church. That was certainly alive and well in his time. That is something that he experienced firsthand. When I said earlier that Paul was no stranger to tribulation, no stranger to suffering, no stranger to persecution, that was no idle statement. In fact, Paul gives us a little laundry list of his life. 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. If you do the math, that's 39. For some reason, they believed that 39 lashes wouldn't kill a person, but 40 would. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone, often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. (coughs) If you look at what he just wrote there, it sounds like a resume for life on the edge of insanity. I have always marveled at people who think that God is a crutch for weak people to lean on. It takes courage, folks, to be a real believer. Being a believer means you actually have to take a stand for something. Standing for something always means standing against something else. Paul knew that truth. Paul lived that truth. But even if the people that Paul was writing to hadn't experienced the same kind of hardships that he had faced, they had faced other things, other hardships, he could also here be just talking about in general terms, what it's like to live on a fallen planet. As I said when I started, all of us go through stuff. I consider my life to be incredibly blessed, always have. And yet my life still has things in it that bring pain and hurt. The idea that Paul may be talking just to the the general condition of this life that we live is kind of supported in, in the passage as well as Paul goes on to talk about the fallen creation, the fallen world that we live in. But either way you look at it, whether he's talking about the persecution that faced the church or whether he's talking about, in general, what it's like to live on a fallen planet, Paul was talking and confirming something that everybody knows. Life, this life that we live in the flesh, has always, will always have the potential for hurt, for pain, for suffering. Physical, emotional, mental pain is part of life. And Paul deals with this issue of pain and suffering in three statements, all of which involve the word groaning. The first groaning here is the groaning of creation. This is a direct result of the sin of Adam in the garden. God created the world perfectly. You know that, right? It was Eden. It was perfection He even put his own stamp of approval on it. After he created it, he declared over it that it was good. But all that changed when Adam and Eve sinned. Creation took the fall right along with us. We took the world down the toilet with us, folks. Verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. No, we did that to the creation. But by the will of one who's subjected. In other words, God allowed this to happen because he knew we would need a fallen world in order to look up and find him. He didn't make this happen. He allowed it to happen. You know, we talk about death as being the the ultimate enemy of mankind. I kind of have a disagreement with that statement. 
Death isn't the ultimate enemy of mankind. Death, in some ways, is a gift. Otherwise, we would have lived in the garden in our sin forever, eternally separated from God. Death gave us the possibility of life because without death, the cross wouldn't exist. Jesus died, okay, so that we could have life. So death isn't quite the enemy that that it's painted to be. In some ways, it's the grace of God towards us. But we took this creation down with us. The creation itself, according to verse 21, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. There is hope for the creation, even if right now it's still groaning. John MacArthur commentates on this passage in his commentary on Romans. He says, Nature's destiny is inseparably linked to man. Because man sinned, the rest of creation was corrupted with him. Likewise, when man's glory is divinely restored, the natural world will be restored as well. There, Paul says, there is hope even for the natural creation itself, which will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, just as man's sin brought corruption into the universe, so man's restoration to righteousness will be accompanied by the restoration of the earth and its universe to their divinely intended perfection and glory. In physics, the law of entropy refers to the constant and irreversible degradation of matter and energy in the universe to increasing disorder. In other words, everything degrades. Energy dissipates. That is the law of entropy, okay? It's, it's a law of physics. That scientific law clearly contradicts, by the way, the theory of evolution, which is based on the premise that the natural world is inclined to continual self-improvement. You can't have evolution without self-improvement. Otherwise, the amoeba doesn't become the plant, doesn't become the animal, doesn't become the man, right? There's a, a, a progressive improvement, a progressive development. It is evolution. And it flies in the face of everything that we know about science. If you think about it, that's not how the world works. What happens to a garden if you don't tend it? It dies. Weeds grow. The plants that you had hoped for die. In other words, without some energy putting, being put into something, what is there degrades. It goes away. The natural bend of the universe, whether of humans, animals, plants, or even the inanimate elements of the earth and the heavens, it all degrades. It is demonstrably downward in its development, not upward. This world is decaying. Creation groans. We're not the only ones who suffer. So does the planet. That's the first thing that Paul wants to establish. Listen, folks, you're not alone in this thing that, that you know, you experience. All creation is going through this process. Why? 
because all creation, just like you, will be redeemed. How? I'll get to that in a minute. The second thing that, that I see here is that believers groan as well. It's not just the planet that's groaning. It's not just creation that's groaning. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We believers groan. The reason we groan is because we have experienced the first fruits of the Spirit. That's what that passage says, a foretaste of the glory to come. And it creates a longing, a groaning for that to, to speed its way. We, as Christians, have tasted of the blessings of heaven through the ministry of the Spirit. This makes us want to see the Lord to receive this new body we've been promised. I would really like to have a new body, like right now. <laughs> Seriously. And live with Him and serve God forever. Wouldn't that be cool? I've dealt with the question in my own life from time to time. Lord, if you have all this cool stuff planned for us, if you have this great future for us, why are we still here? Seriously, God, why are we still here? I mean, as soon as we get saved, wouldn't it be just cool to step into heaven? Yeah, oh, that would be so sweet. There's a reason and a purpose for our remaining here. And it's contained in this passage. I'll get to it in a minute. The idea that we have been adopted as sons, we have been brought into this new way of thinking, this new way of living is also contained in our passage. We have hope. We're saved by that hope. That is the, actually the literal translation of Romans 8.24 we are saved by hope, a blessed hope, a glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, our Savior, is what we hope for. Folks, yes, the best is yet to come, but that does not mean that the present can't be great. Yes, the present contains suffering. It contains pain. We will all go through that. There is this temporary thing going on that will one day give way to eternal glory. And yeah, it, it means that there's some groaning that goes on in the process, in the journey. But we have some choice in this. Before I get to that choice, I want to just cover the last groaning here because I think the last groaning is kind of important and, and I don't want you to miss this. Like I said, there are three groanings in here. The first is creation groans. The second is that believers groan. The third is that the Holy Spirit groans. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with, get this, groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Folks, we are not alone. God is concerned about the trials of his people. When Jesus was ministering on the earth, he groaned when he saw what sin was doing to people. Mark 7, 33 says, after he took him aside away from the crowd, 
Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Now, he's just going to heal this guy, right? Then he spit and he touched the man's tongue, and he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, sometimes translated as a groan, okay? With a deep sigh, he said to him, Ipathita, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. You see the connection there? I I didn't put it together at first, really, until I started considering how God looked at groaning. And because the Holy Spirit groans, it made me take another look at this passage, and in a different way, I looked at this passage. And as I did, I went, oh my. It isn't just that God groans. It isn't that Jesus felt our pain. Look what he does with it. There's this deep sigh, this groan that, that just kind of erupts from within him. At what point? At the point of change. At the point of redemption. At the point of healing. At the point of making a difference. Folks, groaning is just the first step towards making a difference, the first step towards change, the first step towards supernatural intervention. Yeah, that's kind of slim, slim, Scott. It only happens once, right? No, it actually doesn't. John eleven thirty three, different case altogether. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and troubled. He's talking about Martha. This is at the tomb of Lazarus. And Lazarus is already dead. But they're there and they're crying and they're grieving for their brother, somebody that Jesus knew personally, intimately, and loved deeply. And his heart is troubled again, groaning. And he asks them, where have you laid him? And they reply, come and see, Lord. In verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, says that Jesus wept. Folks, today the Holy Spirit groans with us. He feels our burdens. He feels our weaknesses. He feels our pain and suffering. But the Spirit does more than just groan. He prays for us in His groaning so that we might be led into the will of God. We don't always know why hard things come, why they happen. I have no idea sometimes. I wish I did. I wish I could bring comfort by way of explanation to people. But I don't always know. We live in a fallen world. That is such a rotten cop-out to tell somebody who's hurting. You know, it is the truth. But it doesn't feel good at the time, does it? We don't always know even how to pray. You're faced with a situation, and that situation is grave no matter which direction you go. And sometimes you don't even know how to pray. Should we pray that this person who's suffering physically continue to live? Or should we pray that they go home to be with the Lord? Tough decisions, tough things. And the Spirit intercedes for us because He knows what's best. He knows the will of God. And He shares the burden. Now, 
that wouldn't really be a bad place to stop and, and to say, see, God cares. God hurts with our pain. God shares our sorrows. And we could take a modicum of comfort in that idea. We really could. In fact, that's where most commentaries leave us. As I studied this passage, that's what most commentaries say. That's where they leave us. That's where most sermons end. In fact, I will tell you that the, the three groaning thing was an idea I got from, from reading a commentary. And that's all that the commentary talked about in the entire passage was the groaning. Thank God that is not where God leaves us. Paul will end this letter to the church in Rome by saying in Romans 15, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Despite the fact that Paul talks about three different groanings in this passage, that is not the point of why he wrote the thing. He wrote it because hope is the point. I want you to look at each of the groanings in a different light. Again, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the Son of God, God's to sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not of its own choice, but of the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Did you hear the word hope? It's there. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Yes, Paul begins with the subject of suffering, but it's present in a different context than what we tend to read it. He puts it in its proper context. Suffering, folks, this broken world, get this, does not compare to the glory that will be revealed in us. Yeah, all of creation suffers from the fall. And yes, we all live in a world that's undergoing decay, but none of that compares to the glory that will be revealed in us. There's two things that I see here. First, there is an expectation that glory will happen. It will be revealed, is what Paul says. Not might be, not could be, it will be. Just as surely as suffering will happen, so will glory. Count on it. In fact, focus on it because the other won't help you. You focus on your suffering, that's all you will see. Just take something out and shoot yourself right now because it's not going to get any better, okay? That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that the suffering doesn't compare. It doesn't compare to the glory that will be revealed in us. Secondly, second thing I see here, this glory will be revealed in us, not by us, not because of us, but in us. What does that mean? Very simply, it means that we carry in us the unrevealed glory 
of God Almighty. Did you know that? If you're a believer today, you have the Holy Spirit in you. When was the last time that you can remember that He's shown out of you? By the way, if the Holy Spirit is going to shine out of you, it's going to take a lot of people by surprise because God doesn't show up, but what people get surprised, okay? Glory is contained in you because the Holy Spirit is in you. And when he takes the opportunity to shine out of you, because you cooperate with him, amazing things happen. In fact, they're supposed to happen. What is this glory of God? What does it look like? Glory, if you just want to define what glory is, it is the worth or the worthiness of God. <coughs> Therefore, the worth of God is waiting to be revealed in his people. That's what Paul is saying. Now, most commentators restrict that revelation to the coming age or heaven, okay? They think that that's what Paul's talking about here. Well, yeah, when the sons of God are revealed, then all of creation will be healed. That's not the context of the passage, though. It really is. It's not that, that heaven isn't revealed in the passage, and it's not that Paul isn't talking in some ways about our future destination. He is, okay? But it's not the context of the passage. The context of the passage, literally, the context from the very beginning of the book of Romans, from chapter 1 all the way through to where we are right now in chapter 8, has always been about this present age, because it would make no sense otherwise. He's just spent several chapters talking about sin, us no longer being a slave to sin, right? That's not about later. It's about now that he's talking about it. Romans chapter 7 was all about the if thing. Why do I not do the things that I want to do? Why do I do the very things I don't want to do? It's all about the present. It's all about right now. In the beginning of chapter 8, therefore there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Still about the present. He hasn't changed his focus. He didn't all of a sudden jump off the end of the cliff into a different conversation. Still has the same idea. He is talking about the nasty now and now, not the sweet by and by. Paul has been talking about the nitty-gritty struggle of the believer in today's world. It only makes sense that he's talking about the immediate, not the future hope of the believer in this passage. Why is that important? Because the revealing of the sons of God is a present reality, not a future hope. Got that? The revealing of the sons of God is a present reality, not a future hope. Listen, the Word of God and therefore God Himself does not subscribe to the idea that life sucks. Just get through the best you can. Because heaven waits on the other side. This life may not be much fun, but guess what? Heaven's waiting for you, so muddle through. That 
the word of God never teaches. That is a lie of the enemy. God isn't like that, and neither is the word of God. Look ahead in chapter 8 for just a moment, and you'll see exactly what I mean. When Paul talks about what God intends, Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship? See, he hasn't left this subject. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? This is exactly what he's been talking about, the trials and tribulations of this world. <clears throat> as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep for the slaughter. No. No, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. Amen. He's talking about the nasty now and now. Yeah, there's trouble. Yeah, there's hardship. Yeah, there's pain. Yeah, there's famine. Yeah, there's sickness. Yeah, there's danger and there's the sword. And yeah, it looks like we're just sheep led to the slaughter, but that is not the truth. The truth is, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Folks, more than conquerors is not about a future hope. It is about a living hope, a hope for now. Not just a hope for us, but a hope literally for all of creation. Why? Because creation groans while it waits for the revealing of the sons of God, which is a present reality, not a future hope. Listen, every time you come against this fallen world to pray for someone's protection or their well-being, you reveal the glory of God in you. Every time you pray over and lay hands on someone for their healing, you come against the natural inclination of this world to move towards decay. Every headache that gets healed, every disease that is eradicated reveals the glory of God in us in us because it is not us, but it is the power of God that desires to be revealed, to be worked out of you. It's not our strength. It's his power. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray heaven to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to reveal the kingdom of God on earth on this broken, decaying planet, we are supposed to be the revelation of the nature of God, of his goodness, of his love, of his ability to heal. We are to reveal a kingdom where there is no more pain, no sorrow, no death, no suffering. That is the truth of this passage. That is what is real. There are a couple other things that I see here that I'm just going to blast through really quick because we kind of got started late this morning. It's not that there isn't a future aspect to this. If you look at verse 23, it says, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies being a future aspect, one day I'm going to get a new one. And this decaying, growing old, you know, able to get the cold flu and all that kind of stuff will be no more. Okay, amen to that, yeah. 
I will not have to count calories anymore. And oh, that, just, that just thrills my heart, you know? Eat whatever I want. In fact, there's, there's so much food in heaven. There's the, the wedding banquet of the Lamb, where the church enjoys the banquet of its celebration of final reunion with Jesus Christ. And, it, and it, it, the way the Bible talks about it, it, it make anything that we could imagine here in the way of food just seem like a joke. It's not just that there is this amazing opportunity for us as the people of God to reveal the heart of God here and now and change the world that we live in in so doing. But yes, there is a future hope where God changes the world. Finally, once and for all, this planet will be healed. It's part of this passage, but it's not the heart of the passage. The heart of the passage is that we already have the power and strength of God in us to effect change, to bring heaven to earth. The hope of heaven is real. It's amazing. It's supposed to give us strength to walk through the tough times, the hard times, the valley of the shadow of death, to know that no matter how dark things might get here, there's always going to be hope and a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. In the meantime, in the meantime, we don't walk alone. Why? Because the Spirit walks with us, in us, works through us. And even when we don't understand it all, it doesn't matter because the Spirit does. He knows what is best for us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He walks with me. Even when I'm clueless, He's not. Even when I don't have any words, He knows exactly what needs to happen. Even when I don't know which way to go, He never loses His way. God has two plans or purposes for His creation. His first plan is for our good. It always has been. His second plan is always for His glory. It always has been. And it is His goodness toward us that brings Him glory. That's how it works. We're going to talk more about that next week because next week's passage is really kind of centered on that idea of the hope that we have in the goodness of God. For today and for the week in front of you, know this. First, you will be challenged. Suffering happens. Second, you have all you need in you, in the Holy Spirit, to walk through whatever issue you face. And you can walk through it, not suffering through it, but walking through it in peace and rest, if you so choose, to lean into who's in you. And third, you will not be alone ever in it. He will walk with you every step of the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this passage is all about hope, and you are the God of all hope. So, Father, I pray that we would get this in our brains. Not only that you, that you walk through the hard times, 
We need that. That's true. We need your rod and your staff to comfort us. But also that we are more than conquerors. And you're waiting to watch and see your glory revealed in us as we face a broken, fallen world with all of its issues, with all of the pain that it brings into our lives, <clears throat> to know, to experience, and to live in the power of a conqueror. That's who you designed us to be, more than conquerors. And you gave us everything that we need to see that happen in our lives and to watch how it changes the world around us. Father God, teach us how to lean into your Holy Spirit every time the enemy comes knocking on our door with another challenge. Because I know if we do, Father God, I know if I do, the enemy gives up after a while because he just doesn't get it anymore. He's not that smart. And he certainly isn't that powerful. You have always been greater than he who is in the world. And we need to start living like that's true. So, Father God, pick us up. Dust us off. And let us shine. In Jesus' name, amen.